Before we start this week's show, we need to tell you about NPR One, a way to listen to something else. Uh, NPR One is an app for your phone, kind of like a Pandora for public radio and podcasts. Meaning once you open it, uh, you, you cannot shut it again, and all the evils of the world will escape. By opening uh, NPR One, you are basically unleashing uh, a torrent of terrible things that will forever change humanity. And also uh, Invisibilia. Whenever you're ready to listen, NPR One has something great just for you. Find it on your app store at NPR O-N-E. You have only yourself to blame. We need to begin this week's show with a correction. A couple podcasts ago, we talked to a guy named Jesse, uh, and he and his family used the word Nate to talk about a dumb person or an idiot. Yeah, you might say, uh, why are you being such a Nate? Uh, So Jesse had called us uh, in the hopes that we would be able to find out uh, the roots of this, why, where this had come from in his family. We failed to do so. But our, our listener, Amelia, called in with a possible solution. Well, I was actually wondering if you were going to... To mention it, I used to do medical transcription, and when he was saying how, you know, they call someone who's being dumb or whatever, and Nate, I'm like, well, but Nates are buttocks. Wait, so the word Nate means buttock? Well, plural, yeah. Oh. Also, also clunes, C-L-U-N-E-S, those are buttocks. We're talking about Latin here. I guess, yeah. Okay, okay. <laughs> well, so maybe this, this Nate uh, insult dates all the way back to... Um, you know, ancient times. Maybe, maybe. I guess if you were to meet somebody named Nate Clooney. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's really a worst case scenario. Yeah. We have some very important news that we're going to talk about now, um, and it, it it may change the way that you think about dinosaurs. On the line with us now are Julia Clark and Chad Elias, and they work at the Department of Geological Sciences at the University of Texas at Austin. So, Julia, can you just uh, tell us what, what you all found out about dinosaurs? So what we found was that instead of this vision, this kind of this image we have, you know, most typically you've got these dinosaurs running in movies, and somehow they're able to run and have a giant open mouth and roar. Yeah. First of all... This is not a context in which many animals vocalize. If you can just imagine kind of running along and you're about to eat a hamburger, you know, are you going to make a big roar? <laughs> you uh. know, So you might be out of breath because all animals essentially vocalize when they're exhaling. Yeah, I mean, I, when we think about uh, dinosaurs and we get most of our, uh, I guess, data from movies, we imagine these these incredible big roars and these high pitched screams. Um, it, your best guess, based on the the data that that you have, what what does it actually sound like? So we we looked at this this interesting behavior that no one had really thought of before of uh, vocalizing with a closed mouth. It allows them to produce much lower frequencies than if they were vocalizing with an, an open mouth. So I think one one aspect is that they would be low frequency and they would kind of sound like a coo. You, you could think of a dove cooing or kind of a, a booming sound produced by a croc as they do these or these bellowing sounds when they're in the water. 
maybe somewhere in between there. So we, we do know that kind of lower frequencies are more common in large-bodied animals. So it is probably likely that since these extinct dinosaurs were a lot larger than uh, the living dinosaurs, the birds that we see today, they were probably lower frequencies and then even lower with this unique behavior of being able to produce a sound with a closed mouth. All right, Chad, let's let's hear it then. How does it sound? <laughs> yeah, we're going to get... So, so yeah, Chad should take it away. It's difficult. So I'll, I'll give you my my kind of impression. So maybe something like... <laughs> maybe, possibly. Yeah. Maybe a little higher. But it's really hard to do. I can't inflate my esophagus. Well, thank you both so much for talking to us about this. Yeah, thank you for having us. Yes, thank you. I, I feel like a fun thing to do now that we know what dinosaurs actually sounded like. Now that we know what sound uh, might signal to you that a dinosaur lurked nearby. Mm-hmm. Is we should hide dinosaurs throughout the rest of uh, today's episode. Make it kind of like a game. Yes. And so you, as you keep listening to the show, you will hear dinosaurs. And at the end of the episode, count up how many dinosaurs you heard. Send us that number. Whoever sends us the correct number first will get a T-shirt or, or something. We have some T-shirts. Yeah, we maybe um, we, what we should do is uh, make T-shirts with extra tiny sleeves in case it's a T-Rex that wins. Or maybe with a cutout back in case it's a Stegosaurus. Yes. Or maybe uh, just one slit down the back in case it's a Spinosaurus. We've reached the boundary of the dinosaurs I know. Or a hole in the back if it's got a long tail like an ankylosaurus. So send us uh, the, the correct number to howto at npr.org. Whoever is first gets a, a horribly altered t-shirt. It's now the part of our show where we like to thank our sponsors. This week, that's stamps.com. Mailing and shipping can seem like a no-win situation. Trips to the post office are time-consuming, and leasing a postage meter is expensive. There's a better way. Stamps.com. Buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter or package using your own computer. Sign up for Stamps.com for a special offer, a four-week trial. Mmm. That was definitely a dinosaur. Plus postage and a digital scale. Go to Stamps.com, click on the microphone, and enter everything. Support also comes from Blue Apron. Blue Apron, who knows that incredible ingredients make incredible meals. Blue Apron works with a community of artisanal suppliers, family-run farms, sustainable fisheries, and ethical ranchers to deliver perfectly portioned seasonal ingredients and easy-to-follow recipe cards right to your door. I like Jolly Ranchers. I don't know that Ethical Ranchers is, is a candy that I'm going to love. Watermelon ethical ranches are terrible. Choose recipes based on your preferences with no weekly commitment. Check out this week's menu and get your first three meals free plus free shipping by visiting blueapron.com slash everything. Hey, Kimberly, what can we help you with? Okay, so assuming that all bathrooms are cleaned every single day, all public restrooms, Mm. I am wondering... Which stall actually gets used less? Like, are people more likely to go to the farthest one or the closest one or the handicapped one or, Mm. you know? Basically, when you walk into a public restroom, is there there some kind of system you could use to maximize your chances of getting the the cleanest stall? Yeah, exactly. 
Uh-huh. And when you're in a situation where you have to use a public restroom, which stall do you usually pick? So, um, I, so it was always the farthest or the biggest. But now, but then I went through a phase where it was always the closest one, mm-hmm. and now I just go somewhere right in the middle, just because I, I, I think that might be the closest. So that's my that's my strategy right now. Because I'm with you on the on the picking the closest one in the thought that people would always walk past that one first. Yeah. So it would be the least used and therefore the cleanest. Yeah, but are, are people lazy and they're just going to walk right into the closest one? That's been my experience with everything, is that people will choose <laughs> the easiest thing. I mean, I know I do for most things. Well, maybe the, maybe the issue here is that not everybody thinks about this as much as, as we do. And so they just, it's a needs it's a need-based decision, right? Like, I need to go to the bathroom. That's the closest bathroom. They'll just choose whichever's at hand. But you know, so if they're not thinking about it, then where do they, like, just go on autopilot? They're still going somewhere that's yeah. important to them. Unless, of course, the restroom's full, and then, you know, they're all Ugh. probably kind of dirty, so whatever. Mm-hmm. Okay, so the question here again is, uh, which stall is probably the cleanest? Yeah. Or at least the least used. Uh-huh. How about that? Okay, the least used. Because that maybe would indicate its cleanliness. Or would, right. Would but you never can to... tell because... Yeah. But yeah. I don't know. I mean, if a, if a stall is used once but horribly, it would be the least used but the filthiest. Exactly. Huh. Yeah. But, I, but I think I am going for least used because I assume that most people are trying to keep it somewhat clean. Okay. It's mm. quite an assumption. Mm. All right. Well, we are going to try and, and find you uh, mm. at least something. I I think the best we can do for you, honestly, is to help help the odds. We can't we can't guarantee uh, <laughs> a, a perfect bathroom life, but we'll we'll get as close as as humanly possible. I think that's fair. If that fails, we'll just send you some Purell. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you for answering my question, or at least working on my question and being invested in this with me. I've been thinking about this for probably way too long. Thank you. All right. We're there for you, Kimberly. You guys are the best. Right in Thank the you. stall with you. Mm-hmm. Kimberly, we, we think we have somebody who can help you. Nicholas Christenfeld is a professor of psychology at the University of California, San Diego, and he's done extensive research into how people make the choices they make. So, Nicholas, you heard Kimberly's question. How can she pick the best bathroom stall? Well, best is, of course, a, a tricky problem with a bathroom stall. Probably actually least bad is is what she's looking for. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but presumably one thing that she might have in mind is the least popular one. Um, mm-hmm. Obviously she should choose one that's not currently occupied, but she may have in mind e- even more than that, that she would like the one that, that's least likely recently to have been occupied or, or at least used since it was last cleaned. Sure. Uh, in which case, of course, the, she has this um, interesting double problem, right? One is to say, you know, how do people choose from from these arrays of apparently identical options. And then second, if she can figure out how other people choose, she would like to deliberately choose differently. Well, okay, so Mm. she she walks in. There are four stalls. There's no evidence uh, that any any one is worse than another. What's what's the right play? Right, so then our data would indicate if if you come in and these are just laid out four right in front of you, all equidistant, all equi-clean, and so on, then people, other people will have this tendency to go for the middle and avoid the edges. Uh, and then I think she could exploit that by doing the opposite. That is, you know, her natural instincts would, would be to go for the middle, and if she 
recognizes that instinct in herself or knows that it exists in other people, then she could do the opposite. So hit the edges. Right. Hit the first one, maybe. Yeah, and I think that, that would be a reasonable option. You know, if the one on the edge the nearest the door would be uh, the one that people would naturally uh, be averse to. Right. And if she can embrace it, then, then she could be its first user of the day. I mean, the risk there is that people see your legs and shoes, but because it's more exposed, people tend to avoid it. It's probably going to be the cleanest of the four. Right. Yeah, that's a reasonable reasonable way to do it. You trade privacy for cleanliness. And again, you know, this will be modified by, by the specifics, but as a, a first approximation, that seems like a good rule for her. Okay, that mean that you're right. She could walk in there, and it could be a disaster. Which, exactly, right. But, but it, uh, all things being equal, first one is the best one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, on the edge. All right. Um, I'm, I'm curious about uh, another thing that you've researched um, can you can you tell us about your research into initials the uh, in people's names? Yeah, so this was inspired by the thought that lots of people have that that maybe your name does have some impact on you, some nominal determinism, if you will. That you know, if you're called Mister Heart Pain, that you'll spend <laughs> your life uh, you know asking you know, will I die of a heart attack? And everyone who meets you, heart pain. Oh, you know, did you have a heart attack? Uh, and the thought being that if you're called heart pain, there there has to be some consequence. And so we wondered about this, and, uh, and it, some of these things are hard to test, but we want to see, you know, is there a general positive effect of good names and a negative effect of, of bad names? And you can find lots of good names in the world. Um, you know, so people call their children um, hope, faith, and charity, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, but they rarely call their children loser or ugly or, or hopeless yeah. because, you know, they recognize that would not be a nice thing to do. And it turns out people are less careful with the initials. So while parents are very careful to avoid negative names, sometimes they slip and like by these negative initials. So, and so you can look, and we looked at death certificates, so you can find people who spent their lives with initials like ass or pig or die uh-huh. and see what effect does this have on mortality compared to going through life with initials like win or wow or VIP. Wow. And it turns out from this data set, you could find a difference in longevity that is being called VIP adds a little to your life, and being called PIG uh, subtracts a little bit from it. And the interesting thing, and consistent with what you'd expect, the causes of death that are most moved by these initials are the, the things like suicide or accidental death, the kinds of things you might imagine would be you know, most responsive to your, your psychological state. Wow. And the thought is, you know, for a start, you have to go through middle school with these initials, and it will not escape the attention of your peers. But then also, you know, you go to the bank, and the person says, initial here, and you have to write down pig. Or you go to buy pillowcases, and the sales clerk says, oh, would you like those monogrammed? And you have to think, like, mm, I don't really want pig written wow, on my pillowcases. Yeah. And, and so you've got this constant, slight, but, but constant negative effect on your life. This is really fascinating. And I, we, we, I feel like we actually helped Kimberly today. Yeah. Oh, good, yes. Maybe she can report back later how much better her life is. We should probably figure out what her initials are, though. Well, beginning with K, I think she might be okay already. She's probably good. Yeah, you're right. All right. Thanks, Nicholas. Okay. Take care. All right, Kimberly, we wanted to uh, just make sure that you have every, uh, everything you need to make the right choice. So our producer, Nadia, has gone out into the world to collect more data. Okay, so I'm heading down into 
Millennium Park Station, and I heard that there is a bathroom attendant in the public bathroom here, so fingers crossed. It's almost rush hour, who knows? My name is Lily. I'm a bathroom attendant on Metro Millennium Station at Randolph. Okay, and so you see a lot of people come through here, especially at rush hour. Oh, yes. <laughs> like, what does it get like during the crazy time? It's getting kind of crazy. You can see now it's kind of crazy. A lot of people down here. Yeah, what is, uh, can you describe the bathroom scene when it gets at like 5 p.m.? Oh, wow. <laughs> it's a mess. It's a mess. Paper toilet everywhere, wet on the floor. It's a mess. So, so I work for a show where we get listener questions and we find experts to answer them. And we recently got a question from a listener that was, uh, which, which stalls in the bathroom do people use the most? Um, and I thought, who better as an expert than somebody who sees a lot of people, especially during rush hour, go in and out? Is that? Uh, I see they use a lot the last ones and the first ones. Oh, really? Yes. So, so the middle ones are, are ignored if like they can help it. Yes, it is. Do you see people like making up their minds? Yes. <laughs> what do they do? Well, the, if it's open, they'll just go straight to the first stall. If they don't like the first stall, they'll check, check. They'll go to the last stall. What about you? When you when you're using a restroom, like which one do you do, do you go for first? Whatever's open. <laughs> is there is there like regular chit chat that you have like in in the bathroom? Do you have like things that you say a lot, like just to make small talk in the bathroom? Not really. It's an awkward place. Yes, it is, and very hot in there. <laughs> so you, so people want to get in and out. And exactly. <laughs> and you want to get out. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so it's kind of a weird one. So when you come into a bathroom like this with lots of stalls to choose from, which one do you usually choose? Whichever one is open. <laughs> and what if, what if they're all open? Um, I like the larger stalls. Mm-hmm. I do. Because I'm a big girl. These I know don't have hooks, so I don't usually go to the larger ones in this bathroom. They don't have a hook where you can hang your stuff at, so you have to sit it on the floor. So. And that can get gross. Yes, especially in this restroom. So, <laughs> so you, you know this restroom? Yes, I'm in here often. <laughs> Which stall do you usually pick, like, location-wise? First available. <laughs> First available. <laughs> One in the middle. What about you? In the middle. Unless it's dirty. <laughs> Probably the very first one or the very last one. Because I really don't like people next to me. Like, I don't like to be in the middle of people. So, I'd rather be at the end. The biggest one. I was just in there for a while and it is really hot. Yes, it is. Well, that does it for this week's show. What we learned today, Mike? Well, I learned that... Uh, Nate actually does have a relationship to people that are dumb. It means butts. I, I do think that's interesting. It's it's nice to learn the Latin that Nate Nate's means butt. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a pretty formal relationship with my butt, so I call it by its full name, Bathaniel. I also learned that uh, uh, dinosaurs make a kind of a low humming or cooing sound. Well, it's interesting to to imagine. Like it it seems like. When you think about what this closed mouth sound would sound like, it it really sounds like a bunch of dinosaurs are at a very interesting lecture, you know, oh. just mm, mm, mm. right. So there's like some like Velociraptor in front. 
giving like a like a lecture on Diplodocus's Odyssey, and uh, they're all like wanting to look intelligent, so they're just nodding along. Mm. Mm. Brilliant. How to Do Everything is produced by Nadia Wilson with technical direction from Lorna White. Our intern this week is Annabeth. Annabeth spent the week uh, putting the finishing touches on a new tablecloth for the show. Uh, we we don't have a table, Mm-mm. but uh, we appreciate the uh, let's call it a floor blanket. It's gonna yeah, it's kind of a very thin rug. Our artist in residence is Justin Witty. You can send us your questions. Send them to us at howto at npr.org. Our website is howtodoeverything.org. I'm Ian. And I'm Mike. Thanks. Thanks. Well, this show's finally done. That means that you have plenty of space now in your ears to listen to something else, maybe uh, the new Code Switch podcast. Code Switch is a podcast that helps us understand how race and identity crash into everything else in our lives. Find Code Switch on the NPR One app and at npr.org slash podcasts. Mm. My name's Todd. <laughs>